This is Carol Yin, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. With us this week is Rebecca Fenning, journalist, author, and media entrepreneur. Now, Rebecca is the founder of Silicon Dragon Ventures and the author of three books, the most recent one being Tech Titans of China. And welcome to Analyze Asia, Rebecca. Hey, thanks, Carol. I'm glad to be here. Now, as a young person who also works for a media company, I'm very, very curious, how did you start your career? I started my career as a journalist. I uh, was working in New York City after graduating from Ohio University, where my father was a professor of history. Uh, so I come from an academic household, and I've always had this curiosity and adventure-seeking and wish to travel. And so my career has combined this idea of traveling, exploring, writing, and uh, being very much in the news flow. So I started my career in New York City in magazines, and I worked in magazines in New York City for at least 15 years and until I got a call from Red Herring Magazine during the dot-com boom. This was about 1998 and I worked at Red Herring Magazine which was chronicling the internet boom at the time and there were lots of stories to write about and I was international editor there for a couple of years until the uh, dot-com bust happened in about 2001. From there, I started uh, following the venture capital money into China and India. China and India were the new beacons of interest from Sand Hill Road. And I got in early as a journalist uh, writing about what they were doing, you know, how they were setting up operations and funds for China and India and going in and investing in startups that were copies of what the West had. Uh, so. From there, I just got deeper and deeper into the, into writing about them because the story was so interesting. The entrepreneurs were fascinating. The venture capital money that was flowing in was very risk-taking, you know, very daring, you know, go into a whole new geography that you don't know and put capital to work in these uh, startups. And it worked, actually. So the story just kept going that you had these initial success stories. And I was writing for magazines in Asia, Asia Week, uh, which was owned by Time, Asia Inc., which was like a fortune magazine of the East, and continuing my career until, you know, basically I was writing so many of these profiles of these entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists that it started to become a book. And so that led to my first book, Silicon Dragon, which was profiles of these original Internet entrepreneurs in China, such as Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Today, the story is totally morphed into another story. But back then, it was about a few companies that were succeeding. So Silicon Dragon came out in 2008. And from there, I got really inspired by the Chinese entrepreneurs that I was interviewing. And I set up Silicon Dragon as a media and events business in 2000. So Silicon Dragon has been going for about 10 years now, and I'm still writing for other publications as well and doing thought leadership papers, but basically my career has been driven by curiosity and 
adventure seeking and travel and following following the story. And three books later, Silicon Dragon has become its own mini empire with its own community. And I've been very happily running it for almost 10 years now. Mm. And what advice would you give to young people looking to be a journalist, a technology reporter, or a media entrepreneur like yourself? You have to have the commitment and the passion and be able to put in the long hours. Uh, I've been running Silicon Dragon now for 10 years. Uh, It started right after my first book, Silicon Dragon, was published. And I think uh, it has really um, takes just a huge amount of effort, really. I mean, it's not like working for a corporation. You don't have any you know, fixed schedule. You have to be able to work um, and put your heart in, into it. And really, um, uh, it's really nonstop. You have to be, become part of the community. Uh, you have to care about others. You have to um, give something back. Uh, you have to give something valuable that... Uh, that others don't have so that you have a niche that you can own, uh, like I have with Silicon Dragon, um, which was really, um, I was one of the first American journalists writing about the whole uh, tech entrepreneurial boom in China, in Beijing and Shanghai. And so from that, I was able to have this niche. And so I highly recommend having a niche that you can pursue, that you can own, that you can leverage into many platforms. Mm-hmm. And I know you started covering uh, China tech much earlier than most people who are in the industry now. And you wrote your first book, Silicon Dragon. Now, what are some of the key misconceptions that you have observed in how other parts of the world cover China? There's a huge misconception uh, in the West about China and copying. Uh, The idea is that China is a copier of Western Western tech, uh, Western services, uh, that it really is not all that creative or entrepreneurial, and that China is really just a low-cost producer of cheap toys or cheap clothing or cheap shoes. (laughs) And so, that perception still exists in the West, and uh, I think uh, that is no longer valid, for sure. Um, and I write about this tech boom from China and how innovative it is and how entrepreneurial uh, the Chinese are and how hardworking they are. So uh, I think uh, now the U.S. and the Western world is starting to wake up to uh, this reality that China is uh, an innovative Uh, player in the tech economy. And it is uh, even a challenger to the West for tech power. Uh, Now, this is also just a really fun question. Since you've interviewed so many of these well-known China tech figures like Jack Ma, who's your favorite that you've interacted with? Well, I think Jack Ma is certainly the most uh, visible the highest profile entrepreneur from China, and he's a great communicator. Uh, So uh, he knows how to uh, make his his thoughts uh, heard in in prominent places. Uh, And he knows how to build a team that can um, support him uh, and uh, be, you know, fill the gaps beyond 
his visionary capabilities. He's able to look into the future and make things look kind of simple. Okay, we're going after this, and within 10 years, we're going to own this. And, uh, and uh, he's able to crystallize things in a way that makes it seem simple. Of course, it's not when you implement it. But uh, so Jack Ma is the master communicator. Um, and I think that he is also an independent thinker, uh, that uh, a maverick, really, um, that defines the most successful entrepreneurs around the world. It's, it's, a, it's a gene, it's a DNA uh, that they have this kind of independent streak, this maverick streak. And so Jack Ma has that. And, you know, look, um, I remember him saying uh, when I interviewed him, for the first time uh, in 2006 in Hangzhou, uh, in his office back then, which was not the Alibaba headquarters that exists today, but uh, and Jack Ma is not the character that he uh, that he is uh, back then. He's not the not the same uh, high profile uh, character that he became. But he said uh, to me, and I, this really resonated, that he said, "When I must, when I am myself, I am uh, happy." Uh, and relax and have a good result. Uh, so I, I thought that that was rather profound. Uh, it's a, it's easy to say, uh, hard to do, um, and I think it's an it's an ingredient. It's a DNA. Um, it's a gene that other successful entrepreneurs have as well. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of lessons to be learned by these uh, entrepreneurs who have um, uh, really. Uh, seen a first-time um, market opportunity in China and gone after it. Uh, there's never, there's never going to be an opportunity like this again in China. When the internet arrived and when the mobile arrived, the Chinese entrepreneurs went after that. You know, there became a whole new um, uh, field that they could get into, and it was a brand new field. Uh, and China was opening up economically at the same time. Uh, so there'll never be another opportunity like this. And so these entrepreneurs who got in early and the ones, the new generation that have come up right behind them are the ones that will define this future of China tech. Mm-hmm. And that this is a great segue going to your book, Tech Titans of China, how China's tech sector is challenging the world by innovating faster, working harder and going global. So what are some of the major themes in this book? I know you've alluded to a few. And who are the intended audience? Yeah, the major theme is how China's tech sector is shaking up the world by uh, innovating faster, working harder, going global. And we're seeing all of these three factors play out today. I do also have, there's another thread that runs through the book of the idea of originally China was copying from the West. And then China began micro-innovating and creating new business models. So today we're seeing the reverse happen of a copy from China. And I think we're seeing Facebook copy, TikTok, Instagram copy, TikTok, and Facebook copying WeChat, Amazon to some degree catching up with Alibaba, Starbucks copying the luck and coffee model of innovation. So you're starting to see this idea of the copy from China. I think it's playing out in a number of sectors that I write about in the book, uh, such as AI and 
5G and electric vehicles and robots and um, mobile commerce and mobile payments, many, many sectors uh, that uh, we have seen emerge from China. The intended audience is definitely entrepreneurs, either those who are already active in China or those who want to get into China. We also have investors who are interested in this sector, venture investors, institutional investors, individual investors, you know, high net worth individuals who are looking for the next uh, home run. Maybe it's Alibaba, another Alibaba, for instance. So it's a mixed audience. I also think Today, there are policymakers who are an audience for this book because this issue of China tech has become a political issue today. And we are seeing a pushback from regulators against China tech and its influence around the world. So policymakers, academics, academics who are teaching the next generation of entrepreneurs, the next generation of thought leaders. So academics, investors, entrepreneurs, policymakers business strategists, multinational corporations and their executives that are looking for ways to expand their business, either through investment, acquisition, getting into new arenas. So many audiences, actually. That's right. And and just as you mentioned, there are a lot of similarities, but also differences between the tech giants of China and the U.S. And if you could just give us a very short version, what do you think are some of the core differences between Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent or BAT for sure and Amazon, Google and Facebook? Well, if you do the Baidu and Google comparison, well, Baidu is primarily in China. Google is operating around the world, except China. So that's a key difference with them. And, but both of them have gotten into artificial intelligence. So that's a field that's related in some ways to search. If you look at Alibaba and Amazon, Alibaba is innovating around the new retail space. And their supermarkets, their new digitally fancy supermarkets are much more advanced than what Amazon has, than Amazon Go has. And Alibaba is also making strides with its delivery system, this on-demand delivery system and logistics that Amazon also has. But Alibaba is moving ahead very rapidly with the, you know, the super rapid delivery in China. Uh, so both Amazon and Alibaba have morphed into many areas beyond e-commerce and both of them have bulked up considerably. I would say Amazon has not been all that successful in China. Alibaba has become a world leader in, in commerce in the trading marketplace, you know, buyer and seller. So you could say that Alibaba is not only China, but it's also international. Tencent and Facebook, well, Tencent has WeChat and Facebook has Messenger, but I think WeChat is much more functional than Messenger is. WeChat has become a super app. This is an idea that China invented that you have many functions within one app. For instance, payment, shopping, video chats, messaging, <laughs> group chats, and all of these ideas originated with WeChat. And these ideas are now being copied um, by Facebook and others in the West. That's right. And you mentioned how 
one of the major misconceptions is people still think of these Chinese companies as copiers, except now a lot of them have become originators. So what do you think are the key turning points for China to have become a technology power in the world? I think it started with the sea turtles who were educated in the West and had their career experience in the West and then went back to China as China was opening up. So this started about 2000. This is almost two decades ago. And this created, along with the venture capital support for these entrepreneurs, it created a startup boom in China. And that was the beginning. That was mainly the copying idea, the copying of Amazon, of Google, of Yahoo, of you name it. Uh, every internet brand in the U.S. was copied in China and set up. And they did very well, actually. Most of them did very well. And their venture investors also profited quite a bit as these companies went public in the U.S. or in Hong Kong. So I think the turning point when China started to see entrepreneurial success stories, heroes like the West had Steve Jobs, for instance. Today, maybe Jeff Bezos. But uh, these heroes inspired a new generation of Chinese startups Say, oh, yes, Doing a startup is a path to riches, is a path to glory. I can chart my own course. It created a whole entrepreneurial spirit in China where things began to blossom, co-working spaces happened, more venture capital money poured in. There was a, an exchange of ideas with uh, Silicon Valley and a lot of cross-border flows between Silicon Valley and China. So all of this has been happening steadily. Today, we have a new turning point with the pushback by Washington, D.C. against China. But that's a different story. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, vice versa is true. There's also a pushback of the U.S. companies in China. Um, do you think it is the government and their regulations? Is that the key reason why tech giants from the U.S. Uh, have not really managed to penetrate into China? And what do you think are some of the other key reasons as why they have so many problems entering China? Well, I would say that certainly putting blocks on a company's ability to be seen in China is, is a major deterrent. But I would also argue that these American companies made some mistakes in China. They really were mismanaged in many cases. They didn't put in the local manager, had they management in China answer to the management in Silicon Valley or the U.S. So decision-making took forever. The American companies were struggling to adapt to regulations, like, for instance, in the case of Uber and Didi in the ride-hailing space. New regulations kept coming in the ride-hailing space as you entered a new market, new regulations, entered getting licenses for the ride-hailing spaces. All of this became a tremendous burden for an American company operating in China. And you saw also a price war, the American company and the Chinese competitor, of tremendous price cutting and ferocious competition by the Chinese entrepreneurs say, to beat the American companies. And uh, they would lower prices, you know, uh, for growth and care about the profit-making potential later. And there was a lot of talent rating as well. So, you know, there's many factors into why many of the American companies have failed in China. And it's not just a government issue. It is, in some cases, yes, definitely in Facebook, they have never been able to get into China. 
Google did have a chance, but they lost the market to Baidu. And, you know, Amazon has been in there, Starbucks has been there, many, many other companies are in there, but some of them have really suffered from this mismanagement. That's right. Now, this is a really fun question, I think. If the Chinese government did not ban Google, Twitter, or Facebook, in your opinion, do you think they would have succeeded in China? I already know my answer. <laughs> well, they were up against these ferocious Chinese competitors who knew the market who could adapt to the market more quickly, and, and they did. For instance, with Google and Baidu. Baidu came out with localized search features, like community chat for search items that Google didn't have. And also, Baidu had a better search algorithm in the Chinese language than Google was able to get to fast enough. So I think it was one fair square in this case. But eventually, Google did withdraw from the market and cited censorship issues and blockages. Uh, so they forfeited the market, but they were losing the market in any case. Mm -hmm. Earlier, you talked about how Facebook copied TikTok. Can you talk about some of the technologies that have originated from China and why the U.S. can or cannot copy or replicate them? Well, you know, TikTok, the 15-second video app, originated in China, and Kuaishou, another 15-second video app, they are going outside uh, the borders of China, and TikTok has gone global and uh, become a flashpoint for uh, the U.S. regulators, worried about censorship, worried about security issues. I think we're starting to see the 15-second video app copied in the U.S. now, Earlier on, Vine had a quick video app, but it was shut down several years ago. It didn't make it for whatever reason at that time. And this created an opportunity in the marketplace for China to come in and have a version for the U.S. and a version for China that could go global. On the topic of U.S.-China relations, too, in the tech sector, Given the current U.S.-China trade tensions or the trade war, do you think that the global supply chain, which powers these tech companies from both countries, will break apart You know, with what we've seen happen to ZTE and Huawei? Right. Well, the issue is it will break apart if the companies can find suppliers, quality suppliers and affordable suppliers in other markets. So that is question mark still. And some companies are turning to Vietnam, for instance, or other markets in Southeast Asia for supplies. But others have not been able to yet do the same thing. So, yes, yeah, supply chains have, will break apart as tariffs are put on components. But if you can't find the components somewhere else, then what are you going to do? You're going to have to pay the tariff and pass it on to some degree to consumers and businesses. In your book, you talked about various sectors or industries that you think have a lot of potential or are very interesting. So why don't we talk a little bit about just a few of these areas? So how has China evolved in, say, e-commerce? Well, e-commerce has become social in China, social commerce. It's a model that doesn't exist yet in the West, in the U.S., for instance. Social commerce uh, combines social media, sharing with friends while you're shopping, getting discounts while you're shopping, getting prizes while you're shopping, 
So it becomes a social experience. Pretty interesting. I think this model could actually work very well in other markets. It's that China is so used to this whole WeChat system of everything sharing and a lot of texting, a lot of messages going back and forth. So this migrated over into shopping as well. So I don't see why it couldn't work in other markets. I would imagine we're going to see some other lookalikes of this model. Pinduoduo, Duo, uh, for instance, is the one who has come up with the social commerce model. Uh, and Pinduoduo is already China's second leading company in this space. Next to Alibaba, it surpassed JD.com. Uh, so amazing. And Pinduoduo is not even four years old yet. That's right. And I really enjoy sharing this one feature that the Taobao app has that I think it does not exist anywhere else, which is the live streaming shopping option. When my friends from North America hear about it, they're always so curious. And I go on to show them opening the Taobao app and showing them how uh, you can literally buy anything going into a live streaming room. And you have these people either selling food by, you know, cooking or eating in front of the cameras or trying on clothes and trying to sell clothes, yeah, yeah. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's so much fun and, and slightly addictive as well. It makes it fun and entertaining. <laughs> what about AI? Well, AI is one of these foundational technologies uh, that China is advancing rapidly. Facial recognition, speech recognition, self-driving cars, AI into media, AI into transportation, into finance, into healthcare. China is advancing very rapidly in implementing AI into all, all of these fields. Now, if you look at R&D into AI, I think it is considered that the U.S. has the lead globally in research and development in the AI sector. But China is definitely getting ahead in that area, too. China wants to own this market globally. It has created a, you know, a top-down government directive plan to get ahead so that since time, Face++, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu all have designated deals in AI that the government is saying, okay, you, you specialize in this area. Your company specialize in that AI sector. So yeah, I think these are reasons that China is getting ahead and you have a tremendous amount of venture capital going into China's AI companies. Now, another factor has arisen in this space, too, that could hold back the future uh, potential of Chinese AI companies. Uh, the U.S. has put a, a block on selling to several Chinese AI companies that were very well financed and developing very quickly, such as SenseTime and Face++ and iLive Tech. So the U.S. government has put a block on selling to them over issues related to surveillance technologies. And so it has become a political issue. And this is what we're starting to see today is that China tech has become politicized. And this, I think, is because China has risen so rapidly and, and is getting ahead so rapidly in many sectors that matter a lot today. Mm -hmm. And I think um, for people who haven't visited China recently, you might be surprised as to how prevalent surveillance or just facial recognition 
uh, and uh, surveillance is on a, on a daily basis. You know, when we're driving on the road, there are all these cameras just capturing the driver's images. And when you're taking trains and, and planes, you'll need a facial recognition to go into a train station or to aboard a, a flight. And it's, it's just everywhere. Um, what about the areas of drones and robots, given that they have the most established and well-developed manufacturing ecosystem in Shenzhen? Oh, yeah. Uh, for instance, DJI, which I write about in the book, is the leading drone maker in the world. And it is from Shenzhen. It's still privately owned and 75% market share globally. Another interesting Chinese drone maker is Ehang. They are the makers of this passenger flying drone, which I've seen. <laughs> I haven't gone up in one yet, but I, I've seen them. So, yeah, drones are an area that it's not only for consumers, for, it's for business, it's for military uses. And China has become very prominent in the drone space. Yeah, robots is another whole sector. You see, you know, robotic startups getting into factories, getting into retail. I was just at the uh, border for China, and they had a robot going back and forth, kind of keeping things in check. If you sometimes in retail outlets, you'll have a robot who's greeting you, and uh, so robots are finding their way into many business uses, from the household to the factory to businesses. And where do you see the future of China Tech? Do you think it's going to start spilling to the rest of the world, given that it already has nascent influences in India, in Southeast Asia, and also in Africa? Yeah, no, I do think so. Look, Xiaomi has entered India and has done very well in India. Xiaomi, the Chinese smartphone maker. You've seen Alibaba go in to Southeast Asia and buy up Lazada. You've seen... Companies buy into other e-commerce and payment companies in Southeast Asia. Uh, so uh, Alibaba and Tencent and ByteDance and DD, they're all investing in Southeast Asia today. And we're also seeing Chinese capital flow into Israel, a startup nation, because Israel is a focal point of uh, lots of R&D. So Chinese capital and Israeli technology know-how go together very well. And so you're seeing the Chinese going into Israel. You're seeing China capital go into Israeli venture funds as well. So I think we are starting to see China's capital and technology spread around the world. Now, it was going heavily into the U.S. Chinese money went into the leading tech companies of the U.S., such as Uber and Lyft and Tesla and Magic Leap and many, many others all over the past decade, but it really escalated and hit a peak in 2016. But then the U.S. government starts to put the brakes on this Chinese investment into the U.S., and now there are a lot of restrictions on China tech into the U.S. It has to have, you know, approval, and there's a lot of scrutiny over the deals, whether there are any kind of military or security applications involved. Uh, those deals are not going to get the clearance. And so even Alibaba's potential acquisition of MoneyGram in the financial space, that was not cleared. So today you're seeing Alibaba there fishing other places for new ideas and expansion opportunities. Uh, Southeast Asia, as I mentioned, India, Israel, and the action is shifting. Which company do you think is the most interesting one that you write about in your book? Or you can name a few as well. 
Well, there certainly have been enough books already written on Alibaba. I think Baidu is interesting in that it's in a transition. And I like ByteDance because it is a newcomer, very aggressive and in new fields. And it also is going global. So it has hit many of the ideas that are uh, defining China tech today. Mobile, going global, innovating. That's a moving story, though. I mean, ByteDance doesn't have that much history yet, really. And as a global player, any of them could have a separate book written on any of these. And Xiaomi, for instance, uh, which is Lei Jun, the serial entrepreneur behind Xiaomi. I think this is about his eighth startup. You know, he's extremely wealthy and he works nonstop, continues to create new ideas. Xiaomi itself is into smartphones, is into apps, is into business services. Its business model is really unique. I think DJI has a lot of interesting stories to tell about how it's developed and the technology that went into these drones. The electric vehicles, that again, the whole electric vehicle space in China has developed. There are companies that have been leading that, such as NIO and Xpeng Motors. But again, that is a developing story. The China electric vehicle market has grown very swiftly. It has become super crowded. It is facing some financial issues now. So any of these actually are, are great stories for the future. You know, I think uh, the venture capital market is another book in itself. I really go deep into the venture capital in the book. And I think uh, I have written the history of China venture capital in that one chapter of China and Silicon Valley venture capital in that one chapter and how it's evolved and how it's developed into a core group of venture capitalists today who are leading the investment journey into China and those who have dropped out along the way. So yeah, lots to write about, always lots to write about. Mm-hmm. And of course, we won't have time to go into detail in our interview, which is why you should buy Rebecca's new book. And is it out already? And, and where can we find it? Amazon has the book. There are a lot of local bookstores that have it uh, in stock in London, in Singapore, in Shanghai, in Hong Kong. These are all places that I've been on the book tour and Washington, D.C., and New York, and Silicon Valley. So definitely lots of places to get the book. And so how can my audience find you if they want to learn more about everything that you just talked about? A centralized point for the work that I'm doing is my website, SiliconDragonVentures.com. There's also a mobile app, Silicon Dragon. So Silicon Dragon Ventures is the website. And then my work for Forbes The weekly column for Forbes.com is another place. And I've also written articles for many other magazines and media outlets, including Harvard Business Review. I did an article on TikTok, for instance, and Techonomy Magazine. So many ways to get in touch with Silicon Dragon and what we're doing. Uh, Also, our events, which we do globally. We do them in leading tech hubs. And so we have one coming up in Vegas Las Vegas on January 7th at the Consumer Electronics Show. So we'll be there. So we can connect with us online, uh, on WeChat, uh, um, in person at events. uh, And, you know, I'm out there on the speaking circuit as well. So lots of book talks, uh, uh, ongoing book talks. Uh, So uh, 
anyhow, happy to connect with with people. I love to get the feedback um, to these topics that are very much in the news today. Mm-hmm. That sounds very exciting. It sounds like there are a lot of opportunities for our audience and our fans to find you in person. Well, thank you so much for being on Analyze Asia, Rebecca. It was my pleasure talking to you. And I think we're going to be able to learn a lot from Tech Titans, your, your new book. Well, thank you. And for all of our audience and you listeners, you can find Analyze Asia um, on all platforms that play podcasts such as Stitchers, SoundCloud, Himalaya, etc. You can also tweet to us at Analyze Asia. And I will see you next time.